Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Well, conversations or debates or discussions that really we, we don't even need to engage in. One of those has to do with when life begins. And, and I wanna tell you, there's a big debate. You're aware of it. It's surfacing yet again on when life begins. Does it begin in the womb at the moment of conception or does it happen somewhere along the line or does it happen a little further in? Listen, biblically, life begins before conception. Today we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, A Godly Family. In today's broadcast, we are taking up where we left off yesterday in the Gospel of Luke, chapter one, beginning in verse 13. We're considering the story of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and how the birth of his son came about. So let's listen in. Now, I'm certain Zacharias, like all in his day, were praying for the coming of Messiah. But it's possible I think even probable in his case that he was praying for a son. I know it's impossible, but again, if it's something you can do, you don't actually have to pray for it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't, but if you can do it, you do it. If it's impossible for you to do it, well, then you're left with prayer, you see. And that's what I think's going on here. And, and I think this because, well, when he says your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. I do believe that he was praying that God would give them a child, even though it seemed impossible that that could happen. And then he gives us some insight as, as we see two things about him. And again, we're looking at a godly family. A godly family needs a godly father. And that father is to be a man who serves. How did Zacharias serve? First, he served the Lord. And then he served his wife and then he served the community. And, and that's how it's always got to be. First, we connect with God and offer our service to him. And then he instructs us on how we're to serve and minister to one another. Well, he's not only a man who served, he's a man who prayed when he was confronted with things that were beyond him, as we will all be. He sought the Lord in prayer. And I encourage you to do the same because, well, our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. Note in verse 14 there that, that God had planned to bless John's family, to bless his community, to bless society through him, and he hadn't even been conceived. He says, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Not just at the day, but it's talking about as a result of his birth. Many would rejoice. And we as believers sometimes find ourselves caught up in, well, conversations or debates or discussions that really we, we don't even need to engage in. One of those has to do with when life begins. And, and I want to tell you, there's a big debate. You're aware of it. It's surfacing yet again on when life begins. Does it begin in the womb at the moment of conception or does it happen somewhere along the line or does it happen a little further in? Listen, biblically, life begins before conception. And once you see this, then you never have to argue anything after that. Listen, Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That's true of Jeremiah. It's true of you. It's true of me. God says, I already knew you. And before you were born, I sanctified you. He's saying, I set you apart. I planned and purposed a ministry for you. I had all of these things laid out. Then he says, 
of Jeremiah, I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. Now, what this means to us is that before we were conceived, God already knew us. He already planned and purposed the life he'd have us live, the, the road he'd have us walk. Does that mean we're all living it and walking it? Of course not. That's why John was born, to call his generation, as we're going to see in a moment, to turn and to turn back to the Lord. In spite of all they had going, they weren't all doing what they should have been doing. Well, there's something else. Many have no clue what God's called and planned and purposed for them to do. But if you're not sure, you just seek him. Lord, what is it you've planned for me? James tells if we lack wisdom or says if we lack wisdom, just ask the Lord. He'll give it to us liberally and, and without any chastisement. Well, in this issue of conception, you know, my generation, I grew up in the 50s and 60s. Well, there's some, you know, some debate over if I grew up, but I, I was alive in the 50s and 60s, went to school. I was in that first generation that received sex education at school. And, you know, prior to that, you basically learned it all. Well, they said from your parents, but mostly from your friends, let's be honest. And there was a lot of confusion about sex and how those things happen. And so they, they thought, well, we need to tell them how it actually happens. And they taught us and they gave us a cute little, you know, cartoon on it. When the sperm meets the egg, you know, it's very nice to meet you. Uh, and, and then those two come together then there would be conception. That conception would lead ultimately to the birth of a child. Now, check this out. We know so much more today, but that's still true. When that sperm meets the egg, that's the moment of conception. But we know today that, that it's way more complex than that. That, that if you study DNA or if you study chromosomes, you know that, that uh, you know, mom and dad each have the same 46 chromosomes. They have their own, but they each have 46. But when they come together, that, 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 that sperm only has 23 chromosomes and that egg only has 23 chromosomes. And when they come together, they form a completely new person. From the moment of conception, you have a new human being that has the combination of mom and dad, but its own DNA. And I say it's only because then I don't have to say he or she or he or she or he or she. So we're talking boy or girl. The, the, the DNA of that baby at that moment of conception is unique to that child. Now, some are going to say, yeah, but, you know, it's not really uh, able to live at that point on its own. Listen, here's, here's how all this works. Yes, the baby is unique and separate and different from his mom, but living within his mom, completely dependent on his mom for nourishment, for protection, for all those things. But I'd like to suggest that's true even after birth. You know, the only difference is the baby's out, not in. Still totally dependent on mom for protection, for nourishment, for care. Nothing's changed, though the baby's nine months older, things go full term, than at the moment of conception. Well, why do I share all this? Because we're, we're living at a time where people are arguing, what, is this a real life? It's a real life. And as believers in Jesus and believers in the Bible, it shouldn't even be an, an issue for debate. We know what's right. We know what's true. So, so in any case... We have this glorious conception and, and, and that's what, what he's telling, he's telling um, Zacharias is going to happen. Yeah, you're too old to do it and she's well beyond the age to do it, but don't worry about it because God is still able to make it happen. Well, he says it in verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children 
and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, he says he is going to be great in the sight of God. Does that mean all men are going to think he's great? Probably not. I'm thinking he's not going to be the most popular guy at school. I mean, he doesn't drink. He doesn't want to party. He's like a little bit odd. He dresses different. I mean, if you remember Sonny and Cher, if you're older, that's sort of the garb here, you know. His diet's strange. He likes wild locust and honey. Honey, yeah, wild locust, I don't know. You see those people eating that stuff and you got to wonder. So, so John's going to be an oddball. That's the point. He's not going to fit in. He's not going to be one of the cool kids or the accepted kids or the ones everyone's following. But that's what it takes to stand up, you see, and, and to, to make a difference. You can't try to fit in and stand out. You, you can't try to blend in and stand above the crowd. And, and that's what John was called to do. And I think that's what we're called to do. It says he's going to be filled with the Spirit. So he's going to be sober and sober-minded. And he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told, even from his mother's womb. And then he begins to describe his ministry. He'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That word turn is the key word. The children of Israel had the temple. They had the priesthood. They had the feast. They had the festivals. They had the sacrifices. They had all of that. And they were engaged. They were involved. But God says, hey, you're doing all the right stuff, but, but your hearts are far from me. And what he was doing is turning them back to the Lord, back to the one that gave them all those things so that they could better enjoy him and understand him, but not to have instead of him. And so his ministry turned the religious back to real righteousness, a real walk with the Lord. Those raised to know God were to turn back to God. And of course, there's a parallel here. Because lots of us raised in the church, we're still going, we know the songs, we, we understand what's well, simple liturgy, but, but you know, whatever it is we're engaged in, if it isn't drawing us closer to him, if it hasn't turned our hearts back to him, well, then that needs to happen. The second thing he says is that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And there's no greater need today than for dads to deny self, to step up. And to be the godly example and leaders that, that this generation needs. And this goes back to when I mentioned it at the beginning to the issue of single moms. Listen, however a single mom or a single dad got in the situation, the children need godly men in their lives and godly influences. And, and because of the disintegration of the family, not just, not just that there's more divorce or more any of that or, or more dads in prison or all the things that separate families. But, but just the fact that, that mom and dad doesn't always live near grandma and grandpa and, and there aren't all the aunts and uncles. And so lots of families have no actual family support. And those kids need a godly example. Do you know in our state that the majority of men, and I would think this is probably true across the United States. I know it's true in our state. The majority of men in prison right now they, they, uh, that are incarcerated, they, they were raised either without their dad at home or without the influence of dad who might have been home but was just so oblivious and so preoccupied, never really took the time to teach those, those boys how to be the, the man they're supposed to be. And, and, and so people look at our, our, our prison system and you know there are disproportionate amount of certain um, elements of society and, and people start saying, well, maybe it's a racist thing because there's fewer of this kind of person but there's more of them in prison. No, the issue isn't, isn't racial. You could see that there's an imbalance, but if you look at the, the proportion of kids raised without a dad who end up in prison, 
Well, then all you have to make make the connection. It's, it's not about if you're black or white or Asian or, 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 you know, from south of the border. It's about did dad teach you what you need to know? Well, if you're sitting here, he probably did. But, uh, you know, the truth is some of you have been in prison and, and out. Don't worry if you're not one who was. Probably everything's fine and okay. And, and uh, lots of cops here too. And I find that interesting. You know, you got the guy that arrested him and the guy he arrested. And they're sitting in fellowship with each other. That only happens in Jesus, by the way. But, but my point in sharing all of this is to say, godly dads, it is such an important uh, issue and need in this generation and so he, he says uh, he's going to, you know, turn the children of the heart of Israel to the Lord their God. And, and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. How do you do that? You turn them back to the word like Josiah in his generation. He's a king who rediscovered the word and he got people back into the word of God. And he said, thus says the Lord, here it is. And he laid it out. He read it to him and, and, and to turn people back is to get them back to the word of God, to, to, to be reading and applying and obeying and then sharing God's word and then preparing them for the Lord's coming. How? Well, John was given a very simple message. He came into the wilderness, and we've jumped ahead about 30 years here, but he'll come into the wilderness saying, thus says the Lord, and he had one word to turn people, whatever he was turning them from, he was turning them to the Lord, and, and that word was repent. That's what he called him to do. That's what he was sent to do. So, so as he, he turns the, the uh, religious back to the Lord or he turns the hearts of the fathers back to their children or he turns the disobedient to the wisdom of the just as he prepares people for the coming of the Lord, he does it by calling them to repentance. And listen, today... We are living in a day where we are to be preparing people for the coming of the Lord. I mean, he was coming the first time then. He's coming the second time then. I would think it's so essential that people are ready for this one. See, if you weren't ready then and then the Lord came, well, you had plenty of opportunity. If you're not ready when he comes this next time, it's going to be bad. There's one other thing, and I, I skipped over it intentionally because I wanted to make it the last thing of this section with you. It, it said in verse 17, he will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, he was the most powerful, miracle-working prophet in the Old Testament. And here's the thing I find so interesting. It's the same power. It's the same spirit. But John worked no miracles. Why? Because when God empowers someone or fills them with his spirit, it's to fulfill the call on that person's life. And John's ministry was going to be very different from Elijah's ministry, but they still needed the same spirit. They still needed the same power. John was going to stand boldly and call all to repentance. Elijah, very radical, very in your face. He is likened to Elijah for that reason. But, but, but see it. You don't look at what God's doing in someone else's life or through someone else's life and, and you recognize that has to be a work of the Spirit and say, that's what I want to do or, or, or fill me with your Spirit so I can do that. It's, Lord, what do you want me to do? Fill me with your Spirit so I can accomplish your plan, your purpose for my life. Well, Zacharias says to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. And I've already pointed this out in past studies, the wisdom of this older man. He says, I'm old and my wife is well advanced in years. It's good to learn it, young guys. Women don't get old. They just advance. So uh, 
The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to you to bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Zacharias shares his doubt, spews his unbelief, and, and the angel says, stop. In fact, stop until until the fulfillment of all of this. And, and, and there's something here, obviously, for us that, that, you know, it's nothing's easier to spread than doubt and unbelief. But, but if you're walking by faith, you can spread that. And so at this point, he just says, you're not going to speak. And the key word here is until. The key phrase is until the day these things take place. It deals with a couple major issues. One of them being we cannot thwart the promises of God. We cannot stop the plans of God through our doubts or our disobedience. I mean, if God promises to do something, he is going to do it. Now, we can disqualify ourselves from experiencing all God would do in us and through us. And, and we saw that with the children of Israel. God says, I'm taking you from Egypt to the promised land. They get there and then they won't go in. And so what's he going to do? I've, I've heard people say, well, you know, if we won't do what God called us to do, well, then he can't do what he wants to do. That's not true. He just said, OK, you die in the wilderness and your kids will go in. He said, I'm going to take Israel in. If one generation, a whole generation says no, the next generation still gets to go. Why? He said that's what he was going to do. And he always fulfills his word. He's always good uh, to his promises. The other thing, though, is, is sometimes people say, well, no, or try to disqualify themselves, as did Moses. You remember the story? God said, hey, I've got a mission for you. And Moses made all these excuses. And God said, no, you're going to go. And Moses says, I don't think I'm the guy. He said, you are. And well, I don't think I can do it. You can. Why? Because it's God. He says, I'll go before you in aisle and aisle and aisle. It was never about what Moses could do. It was about what God could do in and through Moses. When it came to, to Jonah, very similar but different story. I mean, Jonah just said, there's no way. And he actually got on a ship and tried to go the other way. What happened? God turned him. Why? Jonah said, I'm not going to do it. And God said, we'll see. And, and uh, I think there are people here today and God has told you exactly what he wants you to do. And you're either thinking, I just don't think I could or I'm flat out not gonna. And, and if God has determined you're the one to accomplish this task, there's no one else. Now, I'm not saying he can't get it done without you. I'm saying he can determine that he's not going to get it done without you. And you can go the easy way or you can go the hard way. <laughs> but you, you're going to go. And, and if you're his, and remember, Jonah's God's prophet, Moses is God's man. We're not talking about God making an unbeliever doing something he doesn't want to do. We're talking about God getting his people to do what they signed up for in the first place. You know, there's a point in Jeremiah's um, book where, where he tries to resign from the ministry. And some of you who are in serving the Lord and you've been doing it for a while, you, you probably know, well, you get a little bit of a bit of how he might have felt. Although Jeremiah had it really tough. You know, he ministered and ministered. He prayed and he wept and he pled and he called people to repentance and none would. I mean, he'd come and he'd plead with the people and they'd beat him up. And he'd come and he'd, he'd pray for the people and they'd put him in prison. And finally, he just says, that's it. I'm done. I quit. And then how does God deal with that? It says he lit a fire within him, literally. And that he said that the word of God burned in him and he couldn't hold back from preaching it. And I'm thinking, wow, 
That would be great if the Lord would do that here, wouldn't it? That he would light a fire in us that we couldn't hold back his word and, and, and rightly representing him. Well, we got to get to the end of this. And, and there's so much more in the, the weeks and months ahead. I have to tell you, I am anticipating God really doing amazing and wonderful things as we study through this together. The people are waiting for Zacharias. Remember, he's in burning incense. There's not that much of it. It doesn't take that long. They're marveling, we read, that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. They perceived he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. I'm wondering what that looked like. I mean, he's got to be good at charades because they, they figure it out. But, but at, the, at the end of all this, it says he, the days of his service were completed. He departed to his house, and I'm thinking there's a gleam in his eye that his wife hadn't seen in a while. And, and uh, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Listen, moms, future moms, grandmoms, God hasn't called you to be, um, you know, rich or famous or, um, you know, Whatever the world says, this is what matters or what you need. Do you know there's not even anywhere in the Bible that says God called us to be happy. It does say, blessed are those. Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit and the, you know, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says he wants to bless. But, but the point is, it's, it's that God has called you to be, well, exactly what Elizabeth was, to, to be holy, to be blameless, to, to be righteous and blameless. Elizabeth was a godly but barren woman. And if you're praying and nothing seems to be happening, just keep on praying. Just wait on the Lord. He always comes through. Children, a gift from the Lord already made mention of it. And if he withholds a gift, he has good reason, a good purpose for doing so. But, but there is something else. I mentioned it earlier. Elizabeth would face, well, the scorn of those who thought they understood that if children are a gift from the Lord and everybody wants children and, and God loves children, well, if he withheld children, something must be wrong with Elizabeth. And it was easy for them to conclude, now she's getting older, she never had children. Something's wrong with Zacharias and Elizabeth. Here's a godly family that it would be easy for them in that culture to look at and judge as somehow being less than spiritual, less than right on, but the testimony of scripture is they were everything God intended them to be. Here's an irony and we'll look ahead and, and, and next time we'll look at Mary. Mary has the exact opposite blessing and problem. She ends up being looked upon with suspicion because she does bear a child. Only she's not yet married to Joseph. She's only betrothed. So you have this older couple who can't have a child and people look at them and think something's a matter with them. And then you have this young godly couple who ends up, well, having a child and people look at them and say something's wrong with them. And I'm thinking we want to make sure that we don't end up being those people that are looking at others and judging them like Job's friends. Got to read that book. If you're going through the survey, we're getting near it. I don't know why they called him friends. He called them miserable counselors. And I'd say amen to that. But we don't want to be judging others. We want to be rightly representing the Lord to him and encouraging him in the Lord. Listen, godly families are the foundation for a godly fellowship, for a godly community, for a godly society. And God isn't asking us to change the world. He's asking for us to live godly lives, to be, to be righteous before him and blameless before those who are looking on. The impossible 
Why should we be afraid to pray for it? Well, perhaps we don't want to get our hopes up. But frankly, that's exactly what you want to do, is build up your hopes. In Romans 5, 2-4, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to glory when we have tribulations, knowing that those tribulations are going to produce perseverance. And perseverance is going to build character, and character is going to develop into hope. Part of the way that we glory in our troubles is by bringing them to God. And as we learn to do this and not fight all of our fights alone, we will continue to do this as trouble arrives, even the impossible troubles. Then in verse 5, it goes on to say that hope does not disappoint. Now, by saying that hope does not disappoint, does this mean we will always get our prayers answered exactly the way we want? Nope. It's better than that. We will get to see God at work, regardless of what he does. And we learn that our hope is in our Lord and not in our circumstances. And the hope that is developed is stronger than any despair that we could ever face. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.